This is a Federal News Network podcast. Some 30 supply chain security related efforts are going on across the government. The big ones you might know about, like the Defense Department's Cybersecurity Maturity Model Certification Program. But dozens of smaller ones are also taking place. It all has the potential to wreak havoc on both industry and federal agencies. In his weekly reporter's notebook, Federal News Network's Jason Miller talks about how one organization can bring all of these efforts together and make sense of them. And Jason, let's start with who that is. Tom, the Federal Acquisition Security Council, known as the FASC, really is the one that can can bring all these people under one umbrella. And the FASC was created by Congress back in 2018 under the Secure Technology Act. And really, we've been waiting for the FASC to really kind of get up and running for the last several years. And I think once it does, and it's very close to getting to full operational capability, if not initial operating capability, I think they can start kind of looking across the government and say, okay, these all supply chain security initiatives can, can kind of come together, not become one, but just can work together more more seamlessly. So it's not these kind of disparate efforts all going on at the same time. And just briefly describe who is on the council and does it operate kind of like the FAR council, a interagency type of function? Absolutely. It's a great example. And it's led by OMB, the chief information security officer, Chris DeRussia, who's the federal CISO, is the chairperson. And then you get folks from DOD and ODNI and OMB and GSA and, and others who kind of help talk about the, the acquisition side of it. But also they are going to come up kind of with the, the way forward. So what this group does is they're the kind of the central piece to come up with ideas, policies, recommendations that they can go out agency and government wide. All right. And you have reported, Jason, that the FASC recently issued its final rule around how it's going to address supply chain risks. A big issue, as you point out, all these efforts going on. What stood out to you when looking at these new proposals? Well, this was a 44-page rule. And what's interesting is, Tom, so the FASC put out an interim rule last September, so just about a year ago, and not much changed in that year. It's really a lot of clarifications, simplifications in the in this final rule, and it's a lot around the structural or technical issues, but not really the content of the rule itself. Now, there's only six entities submitted comments, and few led to really any major changes across the two main subparts. One of the interesting changes, though, Tom, not necessarily changed, but really finalized the piece that the Homeland Security Department's Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency is now the main information sharing agency from the FASC. So if the FASC sees challenges or or wants to share some uh, security risks out, it goes through CISA, which makes a lot of sense. It's kind of what CISA's role is, and it kind of outlines how that information sharing will work. There's a new FASC task force that will be uh, filled with designated supply chain security experts that will be working through things like information sharing, risk analysis, and risk assessments. The the second thing that changed that I thought was very interesting is this uh, idea of of how the FASC will work and how it will kind of go through the process of making decisions and and making recommendations, and then really understanding what the roles of, of each organization is. But again, when you go through it, there's not a lot of changes. There's not a lot of new stuff. And I think that's both good and bad. I think it's good because it means they they did a nice job writing the interim role. But supply chain is one of those things that can change so much. And there's so much we understand it more and more every year that is a final rule, the way to you know make this sure that this is a living document. And, and, And that's, you know, yet to be seen, Tom. So is it an interim rule or is it a final rule at this point? It is a final rule. The interim rule came out last September. And back then, 
when you do an interim rule time, as you all know, it, it begins the, the process to, to get implemented because they think this is so important. We can't wait for a proposed rule. We go right to an interim rule. But there's a, it's a request for comments. And now that it's final, again, I think you bet we all have better understanding of how the Federal Acquisition Security Council is going to work going forward. We're speaking with Federal News Network's executive editor, Jason Miller. And among the rules, parts of the rule are recommendations for exclusion and removal uh, of contractors that aren't where they should be with respect to cybersecurity. This got a lot of attention in the interim stage. Should people be worried about this and what should they know about this? This is probably the biggest change that the rule showed throughout this this process. And it's also the most, uh, also the piece of the rule that people really are paying that much close attention to. Tom, if you go back in time a little bit to Kaspersky Lab and the concerns over Kaspersky Lab and how that was handled, they went to court. They There was a lot of, okay, where's the transparency? Why did you make this decision? And then when you look forward to Huawei and ZTE, very similar concerns were arisen about why they made the decision, how they made the decision. So the FASC now actually outlined its procedures and, and how it's being transparent about it. And the fact is it will just make recommendations. It will not make a decision to exclude or remove a specific vendor or specific product. And that those recommendations will go to the Homeland Security Department the Defense Department, and the Office of the Director of National Intelligence, ODNI, and they will, in the end, make the decision about what an exclusion decision or removal decision. It also details how those orders would work, as well as waivers that agencies could ask for. For instance, if they believe that they have a um, need for that product and there's no other way to, to meet their mission except for using that one product or service, then they could ask for a waiver, and they have to tell the, the FASC and, and ODNI and DOD and DHS how they'll mitigate those challenges. And in fact, Tom, one of the biggest, and, and we'll use air quotes here, significant changes in this, new, in this final rule is the compelling justification and mitigation approaches, as I mentioned. I think that's really an interesting spot where they, you have to submit a request in writing to the official who issued the order, provide specific information, including, as I said, a compelling justification and describe those risk mitigation. So I think there's a lot of, of interest in that area because, you know, if you get excluded from federal procurement, if sure. you're, someone's telling you you can't use this, that's a big deal. So I think they have to be more transparent about it and how to be more clear about how this process would work. And given all of the supply chain initiatives going on, the daughters and sons of CMMC, you might call them, how does the FASC and how does this rule maybe unify all of that in some sense so that it makes sense for agencies on how to proceed with cybersecurity in the supply chain? I think there's a couple ways that you can see this the FASC really starting to bring things together. Number one, by, by having this exclusion and removal process in place, make it more transparent, uh, it gives vendors a place to go with a concern, right? Right now, if a vendor has a concern, it can go to DOD or it can go to DHS, but there's no one place to go. So first of all, it gives you that single belly button to push around these con- any concerns you have. And then also, if you are... Uh, on the receiving end of one of those concerns, you have a single belly button now to go push to say, hey, don't exclude us, or here's why we believe we are safe and we're not a problem and, and we shouldn't be removed. Again, before that, there was no one place to go. On the federal side, I think having uh, this council in place uh, gives agencies, again, 
uh, a place to go because, okay, well, who's in charge? Well, is it OMB? Is it National Security Council? Is it CISA? Who, who do I go to? Oh, I'll just do it myself. Well, now, again, they have a place to go that at least to start with. And then the FAST can decide, okay, that is a DOD-only issue. Let's start there. Or it's an ODNI issue. And they also can collect intelligence and share that threat intelligence together, again, through the council and, again, through CISA as that, as that central information sharing place. So I think, I think this is really does provide some governance. It provides some oversight. And, and, and importantly, it provides some, some coordination that was lacking over the last several years. And now that FASC has done this heavy lift of getting this rule across the line, what will the FASC itself do next, do you think? <laughs> Well, now it can move on to its next strategic plan. So uh, FASC issued its first strategic plan last year. We got a copy of it, and you can actually find it on federalnewsnetwork.com. And it outlined you know, three pillars, right, around strategic objectives like standards, guidelines, practices for federal supply chain risk management programs, information sharing, stakeholder engagement. And each of those pillars had you know statutory mandates and strategic activities that they were going to implement. I think this new one, again, we don't have a lot of insight into it yet, but this new one will kind of try to go from – planning and ideas to really implementation and really making uh, some better decision-making processes and pieces in place. So I think it's something we'll watch out from the FASC and and Krista Russia, the federal CISO, coming in the next couple months. And I I think uh, the impact that Congress wants them to make, they will start to have in, in 2022 and beyond. Federal News Network's Jason Miller. Thanks so much. My pleasure, Tom. Be sure to check out his story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I am your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Vice Admiral Cutler Dawson. Cutler has had an incredible career serving our country for 35 years in the Navy, where he attained the rank of Vice Admiral. During his service, he had numerous assignments afloat and ashore, including Commander, Second Fleet, Striking Fleet Atlantic, and in Washington at the Pentagon and on Capitol Hill, where he was the Navy's Chief of Legislative Affairs. Immediately following his retirement from active duty in 2004, he became the President and CEO of Navy Federal Credit Union, the world's largest credit union, where he served for 14 years. Under his leadership, Navy Federal grew from 2 million to 8 million members. Phenomenal. Cutler, welcome and thanks for joining me. Thank you, Shane. You've had a fascinating career across both military and the private sector. Can you tell us a little bit more about your background and your professional journey? Well, I started out at the Naval Academy where I graduated in 1970. And then, as you mentioned, spent 35 years in the Navy um, with uh, six actual actual uh, afloat commands. Uh, the first one was when I was 27 years old. Uh, I didn't know enough to be scared of anything, and it was uh, probably one of the highlights of my career. Um, and then after I retired after 35 years, I went to uh, work at Navy Federal Credit Union as the CEO, where I spent my next 14 years. Um, I'm, I'm currently retired and enjoying life. And um, it's been a great run for me. How would you describe your leadership style? And how's that developed over the years? My style has been quite consistent. Um, I believe, and I've learned this in the Navy, that you have to go to the deck plates uh, to see what is going on. And you have to learn what your people do and how they do it so you can help them to be better at it and more efficient and more productive. 
it's uh, something that you need to do all the time. Um, I remember I used to tell folks that um, you don't want to retreat to your cabin. And what I mean by that is um, the longer you're in a position, the less you think you have to get out and about. But that should be the opposite. You should get out and about more because people change, situations change, and you've got to figure out a way to get to them and find out what they're doing and where, what you can do to help them. Uh, I, we'll talk a little bit more about your book, but I read it. Um, From Sea to the C-Suite, fantastic read. You talk about the deck plates in that um, as well. I would encourage everyone to get a copy of this and read some more detail about going to the deck plates. Cutler, who was the most impactful leader in your life and what quality did you admire about them? I had numerous while I was in the Navy, but uh, the quality that, that I enjoyed the most was the leaders that got to know me as an individual and that they cared about me. And I could tell that they cared about me. And they were not only my leaders, but they were my mentors. And um, I remember um, one particular one, Bill Schiffer, when I had my first assignment at the Pentagon, um, I would go in to see him with my problem of the day And I knew that he had numerous problems of his own, but he would stop and he would focus on me and he would make me feel like I was the most important person in his world. Um, And I I tried to do that um, throughout my career, but really it's about caring for your people. Cutler, in reading your book, there was a quote you used that you used to inspire those people that work for you. And it really got my attention and it was... It was, you are the captain of your own ship. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about what that means and how it was useful to you and the leaders you were developing. Uh, Absolutely. Um, What I mean by captain of your own ship, when you are the captain of a ship, sometimes you're in the middle of the ocean and you don't have anybody to turn to to make decisions. You don't have anybody to turn to ask, what should I do now? You have to be the captain of that ship. And I I translated that um, into, let's say, Navy Federals organization, where I would tell branch managers that I said, you are the captain of the ships of Navy Federal. You're the ones that are facing the the members or customers, as others call them, every day. And you have to make decisions without a lot of guidance, in some cases, and without a lot of time. So be the captain of your own ship. Step up, uh, make decisions. Uh, do what you think is right, and you never can go wrong. I think that is so important. And you have to give your people a little bit of latitude to take some risk as well, because there is risk for them in doing that and risk to your organization. That's right. And and I mentioned that I took command of my first ship uh, with five years in the Navy, and I was 27 years old. Well, my boss had 32 years in the Navy, and um, his, his guidance to me when I first met him was, Cutler, you do the right thing, and I'll back you up all the way. What a wonderful way to, to spend an assignment with, uh, with backup and, and guidance like that. What, what great, great advice. Uh, it's clear leadership is a topic you're passionate about. You wrote the book we mentioned before, um, From C to C-Suite. Can you tell us a little bit about that project? Yes. When I was at Navy Federal, I would tell sea stories uh, as parables to get my point across. And um, folks would tell me, Cutler, we like your stories. It gives us a picture 
of what you're trying to tell us. Now, what else are they going to say? They work for me, but uh, uh, I took it as a compliment, and it was. And my wife encouraged me to write a book, and I needed a co-author to help me. And I found a lady named Taylor Keelan, who was the perfect, perfect co-author. She turned in my stories into wonderful chapters um, that I'm very proud of. Where can listeners find a copy? Well, you can get it on Amazon. Uh, and you can also uh, get it on the Naval Institute website. Uh, and I might add that um, any proceeds from the book, Navy Federal uses uh, to give to charity. Fantastic. Cutler, thank you very much. Really enjoyed your time and your lessons in, in leadership and sharing with us your life story. And, and uh, I've learned a lot both from talking to you today and reading your book. And thank you very much for your time. It's my pleasure. And I, I, I would like to add one thing if I could, Shane. Um, during my assignments in Washington, D.C., I gained the utmost respect for the civilians that work here every day. They're hardworking, they're dedicated, and they, they have my eternal gratitude. Uh, I got to come and go from the Pentagon. They stayed every day and worked in Washington when I got to go out and um, enjoy being at sea. Perfect. Thank you. Yeah, we, WEPA serves civilian federal employees, but your comment is well taken because the interaction between the two is is continuous, it's nonstop, and it's critical. So uh, the career civil servants, as well as career military, uh, our country would not be where it is today without them. I totally agree. And, and I can tell you from the U.S. Navy standpoint, uh, we couldn't operate like we do without them being the backbone of what we do. Thank you very much for your time today, Cutler, and to everyone listening to Lessons in Leadership podcast. We'll see you next time. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus, and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.